Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast hello hello welcome in my name is nick smith the host of the audio ground school podcast and the founder of part-time pilot online ground schools for student pilots thank you guys for joining me happy new year we had the new year's episode last week but so i think this episode's dropping in january 8th so hope you guys are having a great new year. You're off to a good start on those new year's resolutions, those goals. Some people don't like to scoff at the making goals on new year's because they say, well, you should always be making goals. And I do agree with that. I'm a huge believer in goals. You should always reassessing your goals, re-upping your goals or knowing, Hey, I got to push it a little bit. It's a great way to stay committed and accountable to something you want to attain, but it's not a bad thing that people are having resolutions and setting goals. You just want to do it more than once a year if you can. So good job. Hope you guys are doing that and off to a great start on those. In today's episode, it's episode number 75, and we're going to talk about S-turns and takeoffs and landings in crosswinds. Going to be more on section 15 in the online ground school if you're following along, which again, I highly recommend that you do because I can't explain everything using words, right? Some things need visual aids, some things need videos, mnemonic devices, and then we also have the quizzes to reinforce your learning, and then all the bonus content and materials that we have for that. Highly recommend following along. If you want to do that, check it out at parttimepilot.com. And then we organize things by courses. In our step one course, that's where all the lessons are, the videos, the images, the pictures, the, the written lessons, the audio lessons, and the quizzes. And then step two is like practice tests, And step three is the endorsement. So we're preparing you for that FA written to pass and get your endorsement for that in steps two and three. So we're in step one course, and then we're in section 15 on pilot control and ground reference maneuvers. And we'll be doing lessons three and four today on S-turns and then takeoffs and landings and crosswinds. Before we get to there, we're going to do the tradition we started about 20 episodes ago is reading off a review or two. So if you want to get a review read off, you leave them at trustpilot.com. That's trustpilot.com. And then just search for part-time pilot. You can give a review about our website, our free content, our online ground school, or the podcast, whatever you want on there. And then if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. We haven't got too many reviews on Apple Podcasts. So please, please, if you listen there, leave us a review. It really, really helps us out. You know, I do this for free. So a review like that could really go a long way and, and pay it forward. So thank you for all those that have done a review. And if you haven't yet and want to maybe get it read off on the podcast, then I would be happy to do that. And so let's do that right now. And the review is from Chris. It's a five-star review. 
and it says, my name is Chris, and I am just starting out my training to become a pilot. This course is extremely well laid out, and I especially like the audio lessons as I spend a lot of time driving, and this will help me to save a lot of time. Thank you, Chris, for the review, and I am really glad you liked the audio lessons. You kind of said exactly why I came up with the audio lessons. You know, I started Part-Time Pilot, and the reason it's called Part-Time Pilot is because I wanted a ground school that appealed and helped the majority of student pilots in today's world, right? In today's 21st century, you know, 2024 now, what is the common person that's going in pilot training? You know, yeah, we have some retired people who are doing it as a hobby. We have other people who might be doing it as a hobby, but usually the people that are doing it because it's expensive, right? They have to have a full-time job. You know, unless you go full-time, you do an accelerated program, you take out a loan and almost treat it as like school, you know, a four-year degree or something like that where you're going to make it a career. Some people do that, and that, that's great. That's a great way to do it as well. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the majority of people don't do that or can't do that, don't want to have the debt, you know, whatever. So they have to work full-time. They have to work full-time. They have a family to take care of. So they are a part-time student pilot, right? They have other responsibilities, and time constraint is a big stress for them because they have to keep working to pay the high cost of flight training. One of the reasons and the main thing I wanted to do with part-time pilot was make that a little bit easier on that common student pilot. Make a ground school that you know you could use on any device, you use on yourself, you could learn on your cell phone on the go. Make break down these concepts easier. Use social media to interact with more people and reach more people. You know, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, all those things. And then I came up with the idea of a podcast, right? And I was like, well, what can I do on my podcast? Well, you know, I'll read off the lessons and then we can take all the, any of the advertising stuff for the mumbo jumbo intros and stuff like that, take that out and just put that in the online ground school where it's just the lessons. So on each lesson, at the top of each lesson, you can just click and you'll just listen straight to the lesson. You won't hear what I'm saying right now. It's just like that in the online ground school. But then, you know, there is some value to the stuff I'm saying right now as well. But that's kind of how I got the idea. It was another way. So like when people are driving or working out or on a walk or on a break at work or whatever, they can use that time to listen and learn these concepts. The other thing that's cool about audio, learning things via audio, is it's kind of similar to reading something. But reading something takes all of your senses, right? You can't drive and read the lessons. You know, and I'm not advising that you drive and listen to these. You know, obviously... Make sure you're paying attention to the road and all that stuff. But you can't work out and read the lessons, right? So audio is kind of unique in that you can kind of multitask while you do audio. And the other way it's great is because you can multitask, but it also works in your brain similar to reading something. So when you read something, your brain kind of has to formulate an image in your mind about what you're reading. And the same thing with audio, right? And so that's how the, those two different from a video. Video gives you a picture to look at in your mind, but audio and reading, your mind kind of has to create that own picture. And I think that aids in learning. So, and that's why we always say, you know, when you learn something, you should read it, you should listen to it, and you should watch it. And then by the time you do all three of those things, you should have a pretty good understanding of what it is you're learning. That's kind of where it came from doing the audio lessons. There's a little bit of background there. So I'm glad, Chris is enjoying that. And that's kind of a little background on how this podcast started. So thanks for the review, Chris. Again, if you want to leave us a review, that's trustpilot.com to search for part-time pilot or on Apple Podcasts. All right. The next segment that we've been doing is kind of listener questions. We have 
This question and most of our question comes from our Facebook study group. You just search private pilot study group, part-time pilot, and you come join us. It's a fantastic research. We have over like 6,000 members of student pilots, CFIs, commercial pilots, all these perspectives. We will 100% answer your question, but then you also get different answers from different perspectives and studies again show that group learning like that where you get answers from different perspectives really aid in the learning process. So go ahead and join us on Facebook study group. It's a really good resource there. So one of the questions there is about one of our lessons on required equipment for VFR flight. This is from FAR 91205. Now I didn't do the greatest job in my lesson at the time. I have since updated that, but this question helped me do that. So thank you for this question, Brandon. So I'll just explain what it is, right? So I use a mnemonic device, ACA FTSE, and I came up with this myself. And the most common mnemonic device to remember required equipment for VFR is A Tomato Flames. So what is the difference between A Tomato Flames and ACA FTSE? Well, A Tomato Flames contains the manifold pressure gauge, a temperature gauge, and a landing gear position indicator. The reason I did not include that in my Akafutsi, my mnemonic device, because my aircraft that I trained in and most general aviation trainer aircraft do not have an altitude engine, which is when you are required to have a manifold pressure gauge. So if your aircraft has an altitude engine, then you have to have a manifold pressure gauge. Most general aviation trainer aircraft do not have that. A temperature gauge, if you have a liquid-cooled engine or liquid-cooled engines, Most trainer aircraft engines are air-cooled. You don't need that if your aircraft is air-cooled engines. And then a landing gear position indicator if you have retractable gear. Most trainer aircraft do not have retractable landing gear, so you don't need that landing gear position indicator. So you don't need a temperature gauge if you don't have any liquid-cooled engines. You don't need a manifold pressure gauge if you don't have an altitude engine. And an altitude engine is just an engine that can vary itself, whether it's efficient fuel ratio, whatever, so that you can maintain performance at different altitudes. So with the change in the air density, right? That's kind of what an altitude engine is. And then most trainer aircraft don't have retractable landing gear. If your aircraft don't have those, then those three from 91205 do not apply. So 91205 is really dependent upon your aircraft and the aircraft's configuration. So I came up with Akafutsi to kind of be the mnemonic device for most trainer aircraft. And I didn't do the best job at the time of explaining that in the lesson. So I have since done that, and I thank you, Brandon, for pointing that out. So if you want the whole list from 91205, subpart B, then that's going to be A, Tomato Flames. And this is what you got to know for your check ride. What is that list for your aircraft? The aircraft you're going to fly in your check ride, the aircraft you're flying, you have to make sure that your aircraft is airworthy And part of being airworthy is make sure you have all the required equipment and it's operational. So what is it for your aircraft? Maybe your aircraft is Akafutsi plus a manifold pressure gauge, you know? So maybe it's Akafutseam or whatever. Gets kind of tricky, right? To be safe, if you want to be safe, use a tomato flames, but just know that it depends on your aircraft. That's kind of the answer there. Great question. And thank you for pointing that out. We love when when students point out these things so that we can make our course even better. So thank you, Brandon. Great question. And let's get on with the show and get into our lessons here. Like I said, we're going to be in section 15 of course step one in the online ground school membership. So that's section 15 on pilot control and ground reference maneuvers. 
and lessons three and four on S-turns and takeoff and landing in crosswinds. All right, this is the lesson on S-turns. Now I have to give the disclaimer that once again, I am not your flight instructor. I am actually just a ground instructor. So I'm licensed to do all the ground training. I didn't want to be a flight instructor. Even if I was a flight instructor, I'm not your flight instructor. I'm not in the aircraft with you. So anything I say, you have to just use it as a learning aid, as a ground lesson, right? It is not, it might not be applicable to you, your aircraft, the conditions you're flying in, or how your flight instructor teaches. So just use it as a way to get more familiar with the maneuvers. Maybe you can bring up one of these tips or tricks to your flight instructor, see what they think. They'll let you try it, whatever. But it's just a learning aid. I am not responsible for what goes on in your aircraft. That's between you and your flight instructor, okay? So I just wanted to say that as a disclaimer for these maneuvers. All right. The objective of an S-turn is similar to a turn around a point, which we talked about in the last episode. But you are constantly switching directions in an S-turn. You're constantly making the form of an S over and over. It's like an infinite S, right? This way, if there is wind, the examiner can see that you are able to accommodate it no matter which direction of turn, right? So this is kind of why they do S-turns, right? They want to see that you can understand how to do correct for different wind conditions, right? Because if on one turn of the S, you might have a tailwind, and on one turn of the S, you might have a headwind, or you might have a crosswind from the left and then a crosswind from the right. So that's kind of the point of the S-turn, right? Is that you want to maintain equal turns crossing over a line like a road or something in any wind condition. S-turns are usually made over a road where the road is your reference line. The examiner will judge you on your ability to maintain altitude, plus or minus 100 feet, maintain a safe airspeed, and to make a complete turn by the time you hit the reference line or the road. Just as in the turns around a point maneuver, S-turns assume a standard rate turn, and therefore the half circles of the S will be a half nautical mile radius. To perform an S-turn, you can do the following. Again, so this is kind of the procedure that common for S-turns. Again, these are just suggestions and things that you might learn something from. Perform your pre-maneuver checks. This is to ensure that your aircraft is safe to perform maneuvers. This includes the stuff we talked about before, you know, clearing turns, stating your intentions on the radio, your altitude, landing spot if anything happens, all that stuff. Choose a line on the ground that is at least a couple miles long and relatively straight. This will be your ground reference. This is usually, you know, like a straight road or a dirt road or something like that that you find out in a practice area. Choose an altitude to maintain. Okay, so if you're flying at 3,000 feet, say, okay, we're going to maintain 3,000 feet. That's your target altitude. Trim your aircraft to maintain this altitude. So you want to get trimmed for that altitude, you know, so that when you're not on the controls, you're going to maintain that altitude for the most part, right? Unless, you know, conditions in the atmosphere change or something. So for example, I would set power on my Cherokee Warrior to like 2300 RPM and trim my pitch for an airspeed of about 100 knots. And again, these numbers are just for like a common Cherokee Warrior. They're going to be different for your aircraft. Even different Cherokee Warriors, these numbers are different. So you really got to tune it in for your aircraft. And then you must maintain the altitude again, plus or minus 100 feet. First, you want to fly perpendicular with the road and note your heading. That'll be your first heading. Once you cross the road, you want to begin a standard rate turn. Choose a point a half nautical mile from the road as your aiming point. Just as we taught in the turns around a point where you kind of pick a spot on the ground 
that looks about a half nautical mile away, and then you kind of just want to aim to fly right over that, and that's kind of a hack to, if you focus on flying over that point, you'll kind of automatically adjust for the wind and make tiny corrections along the way. You know, if you're veering short of it, if you're veering wide of it, you'll make those adjustments if you focus on that point that's half nautical mile away. And then, you know, you're also ensuring if you hit that point that your turn radius is half nautical mile for a standard rate turn. So you want to continue your standard rate turn such that you arrive above point one and we have, so we have a diagram that we're talking about and point one is going to be the apex of our turn. So it's going to be the farthest point away from the road. That's where we'll start to turn back. At point one, we should be pointed parallel to our road. We started off perpendicular to our road, so we do a 90 degree turn, and we've turned 90 degrees to our second heading, which is 90 degrees, you know, more than heading one in the direction of the turn, and that's point one, right? And then we're going to continue on to point two, and that's going to be on the road again. So we're going to loop back onto the road, and then we're going to be at our third heading, which is going to be opposite our first heading. So we're back perpendicular to the road, but now we're flying in the opposite direction. And we want to cross the road with our wings level, the level at flight attitude and our wings level. So that's another thing that the examiner is kind of going to be looking for. And then once we cross the road, we start our turn in the other direction. Again, we pick a half point, half nautical mile away from the road. We aim for that and we adjust accordingly in our standard rate turn as we turn. So if we started here in this diagram, Right, we started on heading one, we crossed the road parallel, and we did a left-hand standard rate turn to a heading 90 degrees from that at point one. We continued the turn to loop back to the road at our second heading, which is exact opposite of our first heading. So we're flying back perpendicular over the road in the opposite direction now. And then once we cross the road, we'll then turn to the right. And now we're starting to make that second part of the S and we go to that point half nautical mile away, and now we're at, again, heading two. So again, we're back parallel, pointed parallel to the road at the farthest point from the road, and then we'll continue our turn to the right to back to heading one again, flying perpendicular over that road. Again, we want our wings level and to maintain plus or minus 100 feet of our altitude. So standard rate turns, you know, depending on our airspeed and your aircraft, that might be about 15 degrees or so. Again, it depends on the speed you're flying at for that standard rate turn. And again, remember that hack of picking a point on the ground about a half nautical mile away and aiming for that. So take a look at that diagram. Basically imagine in your head an S and then draw a line straight through the top of the S, almost like a dollar sign, right? With just one of those lines. That line going straight through the top to the bottom of the S is the road, okay? That's kind of the pattern, the ground track our aircraft is making over that road is the S part of the dollar sign. In the presence of wind, the same kind of thinking is used as we discussed for turns around a point. When flying in a circle with a fixed wind direction, half the circle will be upwind and the other half will be downwind. We will see the same downwind upwind legs of the maneuver as we would in a circle. This is because we are flying two half circles facing different directions in an S turn. When turning from out of direct downwind, your bank should be the steepest, okay? So remember, when we're turning out of a downwind and we want to maintain a pattern or a circle, we want to have our steepest turn or else that downwind is going to push us off that point half nautical mile away. So if we're aiming at a point half nautical mile away from our road, we have a tailwind, 
and we don't turn steep enough, it's going to push us further away from the road than that half nautical mile point. That's going to be our steepest turn when we're turning out of a downwind. When the wind is directly at our side, this is when we should start to gradually reduce our bank to a moderate bank angle. By the time you're, we're directly upwind again, so we continue our turn and now we're, we're upwind and we have a straight headwind, when we turn back the other direction, we're turning out of a headwind, we're going to have our shallowest bank. Again, because that headwind is going to push us towards the road, so if we have too steep of a bank, plus the headwind pushing us towards the road, we're going to turn in front before that half nautical mile point. And we want these to be standard rate turns, you know, a half nautical mile away from the road. So that's why we want to shallow our bank, slowly turn, and then let that headwind kind of push us back into that point. So we're turning out of the tailwind, we have a steep bank. When we're turning out of a headwind, we have a shallower bank in order to kind of keep that, keep our radius of our turns constant at the half nautical mile. So if we're continuing on in our S, when we get to that half nautical mile point, we'll have a, a crosswind now. It'll be back directly at our side again, and we'll start to gradually increase our bank until we're back directly to a downwind and in our steepest angle. And again, we have a picture of this. We threw in some wind. We show you know, where the steepest banks in the S-turn will be according to the wind and where our, our shallowest banks will be according to the wind. If turns are not made correctly, the two semicircles will not be consistent. For example, if flying over the road into a headwind and you bank too steeply, your semicircle will be much smaller. On the other hand, if flying over the road in a tailwind and your bank is not steep enough, your semicircle will be much bigger than it should be. All right, so this is kind of exactly what I mentioned. You know, the wind is going to push us off and make either bigger half circles or smaller half circles if we don't adjust our bank accordingly to the wind. So this is what the examiner is looking for. Do you understand? you know, where the wind's coming from and how to adjust your bank accordingly. And that's why that hack of just picking a spot on the ground half nautical mile away on either side of the road is really helpful. Because if you just fly to that point, you're kind of automatically making those tiny little adjustments that you need to in order to hit that point and keep that half nautical mile radius turn. Are you struggling on your radio calls to ATC? Are you looking for a better way to practice that's not up there in the air in that stressful situation? Well, I want to talk to you guys about something called AR Sim or Aviation Radio Simulator by Plain English. It lets you practice talking to ATC through all phases of VFR and IFR flight from taxi out to takeoff all at your own pace. There's no simulator setup needed and it works on any device, mobile or the web. So whether you're a novice or seasoned pro, the guided communication curriculum in trainer mode will elevate your comms proficiency greatly. Download ARSM by Plain English today and check out our show notes where you can get 10% off using a coupon code. It is a great tool and I highly, highly recommend it. All right, so that's it for our lesson on S-turns. Let's now talk about takeoffs and landings and crosswinds. Talk about crosswinds, and then we'll kind of talk about some tips and tricks when and stuff the FAA recommends for taking off and landing in those crosswinds. Again, same disclaimer as last time. I'm not your flight instructor. Follow exactly what your flight instructor teaches you. 
and what you need to do for your aircraft per the FAA. These are just helpful tidbits. All right, just as we crab into the wind when maintaining traffic patterns and turns around a point, same concept should be taken when taking off and landing in crosswind. When taking off in a crosswind, a pilot should apply aileron pressure into the crosswind. This means the upwind wings aileron raised and the downwind wings aileron lowered. The upwind, so the wing on the side of the wind, that aileron will raise. And that wing, because when the aileron raises, you get less lift, that wing will drop. And then the opposite wing will raise. So you'll kind of turn into the wind, right? That's kind of what, that's what, that's what's happening. The same is true when landing in a crosswind. When landing in a crosswind, a pilot will come down on final approach with crosswind corrections of aileron pressure into the crosswind and opposite rudder to align the fuselage with the runway centerline. So when you do that, right, when you turn into the wind, your fuselage is also going to turn a little bit. So it's not going to be parallel. It's not going to be lined up with the centerline. So when you land, if you land like that, as you're crabbed into the wind, your wheels are going to touch the ground and you can really damage your aircraft like that if your wheels touch the ground not aligned with the direction of your motion, right? Your motion is taking you straight down the runway. That's your ground path. It's straight down the runway, down the center line. Your landing gear wheels are going to be pointed, you know, if you're pointed to the right into a right crosswind from the right, they're going to be pointed, tilted to the right. And so when you land, it can have really high stress on that and it can really, they could break off. So you want to use opposite rudder to turn that, to yaw that fuselage back straight to the center line. Upon landing, pilot however, should release the rudder input, but maintain ailerons into the crosswind. So you have opposite rudder. When you Immediately when you touch down, you let go of that rudder, but you want to maintain the ailerons because you still have flying airspeed right when you touch down. The wind will still affect you before you slow down, so you want to maintain those crosswind corrections with the ailerons. A common and possibly disastrous error made by pilots is attempting a landing in crosswinds that exceed the airplane's maximum demonstrated crosswind component. Takeoff and landings above what has been tested by professional test pilots is not illegal, but is highly inadvisable and dangerous. The aircraft's approved flight manual or pilot operating handbook will list the maximum crosswinds that have been tested for your aircraft. They're not listing, there's not like an FAA rule that says these are the maximum crosswinds you can land in, and there's not maximum crosswind even for your aircraft. This is what it's been tested at with some of the most experienced pilots, you know, these test pilots, this is as much as they've tested it at. So what you want to do is, right, you want to realize that and make your own, your own limit, right? So how do we do that? Well, we work with our instructor to practice these, and then we kind of build up, say we try a five knot crosswind, boom, got that down, then maybe we go seven knot, then maybe 10 knot, and then you probably don't want to go as much as the maximum tested crosswind. Probably your personal limit should be a little bit less than that to be safe and not overstress the aircraft on landing. The FAA only requires that in order for an airplane to be type certificated, it can be demonstrated to be controllable with no exceptional degree of skill or alertness on the part of the pilot in 90 degree crosswind up to a velocity equal to 0.1 VSO. This means a direct crosswind with wind speed 20% of the airplane's full flap stall speed. So the full flap stall speed, 20% of that. So if your full flap stall speed is 54 knots, the requirement for this to be type certified is for 
a full crosswind control to have full crosswind control for a pilot with no exceptional degree of skill or alertness. That's kind of a, a weird thing to say, but this is the FAA regulation. So that would be so twenty percent of fifty four knots would be ten point eight knots. So the the FAA requirement is that the aircraft should be able to land and have full crosswind control for a pilot that's not like exceptional pilot, like the average pilot at ten point eight knots crosswind in this example, if the full flap stall speed was 54 knots. So that's the only kind of requirement, you know, it's for the aircraft manufacturers. It's not for the pilots. So again, that's why you have to make your own kind of limitations. And that's why I say on top of this limit, a pilot's highly recommended and encouraged by the FAA to work with their flight instructors on their own personal limits for crosswinds. To do this, pilots can practice crosswind takeoffs and landings with their instructor and note the amount of crosswind they're able to handle. For example, say the maximum crosswind tested for your aircraft is 17 knots of crosswind component, and after a series of three to four flights, your instructor finds out that anything over 10 knots of crosswind components makes landing for you extremely difficult. In this situation, the student pilot would be advised to have their own personal crosswind limit of 10 knots at maximum, right? If your instructor finds that landing above anything 10 knots crosswind is difficult for you, then that's, that's your limit, right? And that'll help you. So if you're coming down to land on a solo flight or something, and it's over the, the crosswind, you maybe want to take a couple go around laps to see if that wind diminishes or maybe ask for a different runway where the crosswind is less or fly to a different that's your limit right and you don't want to exceed that and you should make your own with your flight instructor and the proper practice the fa provides a general danger zone for crosswinds on takeoff and landing for general aviation pilots we have a chart here it's in the airplane flying handbook I'll try to explain it, but basically it's, a, it's just a chart with the y-axis of wind velocity. It goes from 0 to 60, and then the x-axis is wind angle. So it's not telling you crosswind component. It's telling you the wind velocity on the y and the wind angle on the x-axis, and that goes from 0 to 100. And so at the 90-degree point, that's going to be you know the wind angle. That's going to be a direct crosswind. And then they kind of highlighted the danger zone. It goes from about 100 degrees of wind angle and 15 knots and then it it kind of curves up to where it's at 60 degrees wind angle it's at 20 knots at 40 degrees it's about 27 knots at 20 degrees wind angle it's about 50 knots right because the the less of an angle the less of a crosswind component so you can have a higher wind velocity you'll have more of a headwind component and so that makes it easier to land right but the higher degrees you get closer to 90 degrees to that direct crosswind, you can't have as much wind velocity because it's a direct crosswind. It's directly 100% into, put into that crosswind. So that's why they say about 15 knots of crosswind component. Anything above that is kind of the danger zone. That's just what the FAA kind of recommends in their airplane flying handbook. Sorry if I butchered explaining that chart. Kind of a dumb chart if you ask me. <laughs> they should just say, the FAA advises, you know, anything over 15 knots of crosswind or higher as a danger zone, but you should set your own personal limits with your instructor. That's what they should have said. <laughs> as previously discussed in the lessons on cross-country planning for takeoff and landing performance, you can calculate crosswinds one of many ways. You can use the cosine trig function by doing the equation crosswind equals wind velocity times the cosine of the angle between the wind and runway in degrees, or you can use the below FAA chart, and this is a chart that we recommend figuring out how to use it because you'll get it on your FAA written exam. 
So any chart that you have from the FAA Airman Testing Supplement, any chart that's on there, recommend knowing how to use that because chances are if the FAA has a figure for it, you might get a question on that figure. Plus, it's like a free tool for you to use on the test, right? You get that FAA Airman Testing Supplement on the test. So all the information in there, all the tools in there, you get to use for that test. Or you can use, if you're not, if this isn't FAA written stuff, you're actually flying, I recommend using a quick reference chart like what we have in our bonus downloads course. So we have, we made a headwind slash tailwind quick reference chart and a crosswind quick reference chart that you can print off and just kind of put in your kneeboard. And basically it just has table of values and you just look for your, the wind velocity and the degrees between the runway and the wind. And you just find and boom, it's got the crosswind component right there. It's just real quick reference. So you're not doing cosine and trig functions in the air, or you're not pulling out in a ruler and using this FA written chart. So that's what I recommend when you're flying. What I recommend for the FA written is understanding how to learn this crosswind component graph. So that's what we're going to review how to kind of use that and an FA tolerance question that, you know, maybe you get, might get asked. Well, let's do an example. It says, refer to the figure below, and this is figure 36 from the FAA Airman Testing Supplement. It's the crosswind components graph. Determine the maximum wind velocity for 45-degree crosswind if the maximum crosswind component for the airplane is 25 knots. For this question, we are asked the maximum wind velocity, and we are given the wind angle, the angle between wind and runway, as 45 degrees and the maximum crosswind limit for the airplane of 25 knots. So step A in the below chart would, will be finding that 45-degree line on the chart. So that's the crosswind, maximum wind velocity for 45 degree crosswind, right? So step A is you want to find that angle, right? So find the crosswind angle, the angle between the wind and your runway. That's 45 degrees. So we want to find that line in step A of this chart. And this chart has an example in it. I'm saying step A, B, C, and D because in the example, that's how it lists the steps. So once we found the line for 45 degrees, then we want to find our maximum crosswind velocity of 25 knots on the bottom axis. So the bottom x-axis is crosswind component. We want to find where 25 is and draw a straight line up until we intersect 45 degree diagonal line that is the angle between the wind and our runway. At that intersection point, then we want to look what curved line would that intersection point land on. That's going to be, and that curved line is going to be our wind velocity. So it's a little bit different than the example on the thing, because on the example on the thing, it gives us the wind speed at a 30 degree angle. This one, we're trying to find what wind speed we can have with our maximum crosswind. So usually we have the wind speed and the angle, and we tell you what, and then we figure out what the crosswind component is. So to do that, we find the angle first, then we find the diagonal line for the angle, and then we find the curve, the arc for our wind velocity. And then at the intersection of the arc and our diagonal line for the angle, that point, we then draw a straight line down to get our crosswind or a straight line to the left to get our headwind. But this time, the question tells us our crosswind, our maximum crosswind, and we want to know what wind velocity. So instead of matching our wind velocity with our wind angle, to find our crosswind, we're matching our crosswind, our maximum crosswind of 25, with our wind angle to then find our wind velocity. Again, the wind angle 45 degrees. So on that line where that intersects the straight line up from 25 degrees is going to be about equivalent 
it's, it's kind of right between the arc for 30 knots and the arc for 40 knots. So that would be around if there was an arc for 35 knots. That's equivalent to a wind speed of 35 knots at that 45 degree angle would give us a crosswind component of 25 knots, which is our maximum. So we can, if we have a maximum crosswind of 25 knots, that means if the wind is off at a 45 degree angle, it can be a maximum of 35 knots. If it's more than 35 knots, then we would bust our maximum crosswind limit. Okay, hopefully that made sense. Again, kind of a visual thing. This one's difficult to to explain using my words, but hopefully helps you out. But please, you know, go home and pull up figure 36 and just kind of rewind that and, and have a visual aid when I go over that. You know, maybe try that example yourself and then listen to how I went through it with that visual aid and it'll make, make a lot more sense. Alrighty. Well, thank you guys for listening. Next week, we're continuing on. We're going to finish up section 15 with lesson five on cross-checking. Cross-checking is a procedure that the FAA teaches and wants all student pilots to know and good proper pilots to constantly do. And that's where, you know, you see the sight picture out your window of what your aircraft is doing, and then you cross-check that with what is happening on your instruments. If you want to continue on to instrument flying, this cross-checking is very, very important. And if you start to lose visibility, this cross-checking becomes even more and more poignant. So even VFR pilots need to know how to cross-check and trust their instruments. So that's what we'll talk about next week in lesson 15. And then that's not a super long lesson, so then we'll probably start section 16 on navigation. So that's going to have just three lessons, a lesson on aeronautical charts, pilotage, and dead reckoning, and then BURs, DMEs, TACANs, and Vortex. So we're going to talk all about land-based navigation that you'll be required to learn as a private pilot. So that'll be some fun stuff. So yeah, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers, and avoid emergency situations. 
if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time. Everything's great and dandy. But once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy, heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. 
And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.